now it's time for Yodcast's Got Talent. Hello. Hi. What's your name and where do you come from? My name's Amanda and I'm from Vancouver, eh? This is Sheba who will be performing with me. Simply appalling. I really quite like that. Next. Top of the morning to you. Who do we have here? Ava, from Vancouver. And this is my Jodcast. Okay. Impress us. The Jodcast. Braving the English summer. With Megan Argo, David Alt, John Field, Jen Gupta, Ian Morrison, and Neil Young. The Jodcast, August 2010 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Neil Young, and joining me this time is Jen Gupta. Hello. Hello. It's been a while since you've been on the show, Neil. It has indeed. I've been trying to do some work. Oh, I don't believe you. Yeah. <laughs> and in the show this time, we have the final interviews from Dave's trip to the University of Western Ontario, and we hear what you can see in the night sky in August 2010. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, heavyweight stars break records, buckyballs in space, and the origins of a hypervelocity star. Stars come in many sizes. Some are small and incredibly dense, a teaspoon of material weighing more than a fully laden truck, Others are huge but rarefied, large enough to swallow the orbit of Jupiter, but much less dense than the Sun. Observations suggested that the upper limit on a star's mass was 150 times that of our own Sun, and, whilst recent observations have detected a few stars approaching this mass, the question remains whether this apparent limit is physical, they cannot form larger than this, or statistical, they can, but are so rare that it is unlikely there are any close enough to us to be detectable. Likely locations for such stars would be in high-mass young clusters, since the more massive a star, the faster it uses up its fuel and dies. Part of the problem is that the central parts of massive star-forming regions, the very places these stars might be if they form at all, are very crowded places, making imaging and spectroscopy of individual objects a difficult undertaking. But in a paper published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society during July, a team of astronomers has now found evidence of some record-breaking stars with masses well above the 150 solar mass limit. The team, led by Paul Crowther at the University of Sheffield, used observations from the archives of both the Hubble Space Telescope and the Very Large Telescope in Chile to study stars in two clusters where rapid star formation is still occurring. Different atoms and molecules absorb and emit light at characteristic wavelengths, resulting in a series of absorption or emission lines in a spectrum which can be used to determine what chemicals are present. Since different chemicals are stable within different temperature ranges, the chemical signatures present in a spectrum can give an estimate of the temperature of a star's atmosphere. The width of these lines is determined partly by the speed of the gas creating them, which is determined by the temperature. The hotter a gas, the faster the particles within it move. These diagnostics give an estimate of the luminosity of a star, from which its mass can then be estimated. By examining spectra from NGC 3603, an open cluster located in the constellation of Carina, and R136 in the Large Magellanic Cloud, the astronomers estimated the masses of several massive stars, and found several that are larger than the theoretical 150 solar mass limit. As stars age, they lose material in a stellar wind. Generally, the more massive the star, the stronger the wind, and the more material is lost per second. 
The largest of the stars examined in this survey, R136A1, has a wind speed of roughly 2,600 km per second, and a current mass 265 times that of the Sun, but has probably lost an estimated 20% of its mass in the first 1.5 million years of its life, so that it may have started out as massive as 320 solar masses, way above the current limit generally used in modelling stellar populations. These findings have implications for our understanding of stellar evolution. Exactly how such massive stars form is not certain, and the question remains as to what happens when they reach the end of their lives. Stars between 8 and 150 times the mass of the Sun end their lives as core-collapsed supernovae, leaving behind a compact neutron star remnant. But stars this massive may be the progenitors of so-called pair-instability supernovae, explosions so violent that they rip apart the star altogether. Much of what we can see in the universe is made up of hydrogen. Some heavier elements, such as helium, were created naturally as the universe cooled following the Big Bang, and others have been created in violent supernova explosions. Under the right conditions, elements combine together forming molecules, and evidence has been found for hundreds of simple molecules in space, including several more complex ones. Now, evidence has been found for a particular form of molecular carbon in a planetary nebula. In a paper published in Science Express on July 22nd, Jan Carmi of the University of Western Ontario and colleagues described the detection of molecules known as fullerenes in the spectrum of a planetary nebula, the gaseous ejector left over when a sun-like star reaches the end of its life and becomes a white dwarf. Prior to the white dwarf phase, the star ejects its outer layers of material in an outflow. Chemical reactions in this outflow turn the material into a variety of molecules, and, eventually, dust grains. The team observed the circumstellar material of TC1, a young planetary nebula, using the infrared spectrograph on the Spitzer Space Telescope. What they found were so-called diffuse interstellar bands in the near-infrared part of the spectrum, at wavelengths identical to those seen in laboratory experiments with fullerenes. Fullerenes are a peculiar form of carbon, resembling a football in structure. Also known as buckyballs, fullerenes are molecules consisting of large numbers of carbon atoms, arranged in five or six-sided faces, effectively like the panels which make up the surface of a football. Fullerenes come in different sizes, but these observations show evidence for forms containing 60 and 70 carbon atoms. In the laboratory, the formation of fullerenes is inhibited by the presence of hydrogen, so the presence of such molecules in this nebula suggests that the environment around TC1 is hydrogen deficient. The authors suggest that this unusual environment is a result of the star having ejected its outer hydrogen envelope a few thousand years ago, exposing the underlying helium shell. These two molecules are the largest so far found in space. They make up a few percent of the total carbon present in the nebula, showing for the first time that if the conditions are right, fullerenes can form efficiently in space. Most stars in our galaxy orbit around the galactic centre, according to well-known laws of motion. The Sun travels in its orbit around the galactic centre at a velocity of approximately 220 km per second. A rare class of fast-moving stars, known as hypervelocity stars, move much faster. Only a handful of such stars are known, all discovered since 2005, and thought to have been ejected from the galactic centre at some point in the past. Now, a team of astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope have found a hypervelocity star with one of the fastest speeds yet, and confirmed that it did in fact originate in the Milky Way's core. The star is travelling through space at 2.5 million kilometres an hour, three times faster than the orbital motion of our own Sun. The team, led by Warren Brown of the Harvard-Smithsonian Centre for Astrophysics in Massachusetts, used Hubble observations to measure the direction of motion of the star, and found that its trajectory points directly back to the centre of our galaxy. The star is travelling twice as fast as it would need to in order to escape the gravitational pull of the galaxy, something that does not occur under normal circumstances, 
so something unusual has to have happened in order to give it such a kick. The team calculated that, based on the star's velocity and current position, it must be 100 million years old, if it has indeed been thrown out of the core. The twist is that the star's mass, about nine times that of the sun, and blue colour, imply that it should have reached the end of its life after just 20 million years. In a paper published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters during July, the team suggests that the most likely explanation is that the star was originally part of a triple system, which underwent a cosmic game of pool with the black hole at the centre of the galaxy. Their model involves a pair of closely orbiting stars, together with a third star orbiting further out, which came close to the black hole. The black hole pulled the outer star away from its companions, transferring some momentum to the remaining binary system and increasing its velocity. As they travelled away from the galactic core, the pair continued to evolve as normal, with the more massive star reaching the red giant phase first. As it expanded, the outer layers of the giant star swallowed up its companion and the two stars spiralled together, merging to form the star we now see, an example of the class known as blue stragglers, stars that appear bluer and younger than nearby populations suggest they should. The team are using the same techniques to determine the histories of several other gravitationally unbound hypervelocity stars located in the outer regions of the Milky Way. And finally, on July the 23rd, NASA released the highest resolution maps so far of the entire surface of Mars. The Thermal Emission Imaging System, or THEMIS, has been imaging Mars from orbit on board NASA's Mars Odyssey spacecraft, which began science operations around the planet in February 2002. The detailed map has been constructed from data obtained over the last eight years by combining nearly 21,000 individual images to create a giant mosaic, which is available to the public. At full zoom, the smallest surface details are just 100 metres wide. According to Geoffrey Plout, Odyssey project scientist at JPL, the map lays the framework for global studies of properties such as the mineral composition and physical nature of the surface materials. While portions of Mars have been mapped at higher resolution, this map provides the most accurate view so far of the entire planet. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, if you've listened to the July show, you'll know that Dave is currently on a tour around North America. Lucky him. The lucky fella, yeah. Um, he's touring planetariums and science centres, and he's also doing a lot of interviews for the Jogcast. He's on a bit of an interview mission, I think. Living the dream, definitely. <laughs> and in the July episode, we had a few interviews that he did at the University of Western Ontario. And in this episode, we're going to listen to the final two of those. So I'm here at the University of Western Ontario with Dr. Irene Antonenko, who's one of the postdoctoral fellows here, and also the coordinator of the Canadian Lunar Research Network. Welcome to the Jogcast, Irene. Thank you. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what the uh, CLRN actually is? Yes, the Canadian Lunar Research Network, or the CLRN, is a network of researchers all across Canada who are working towards understanding the moon, going to the moon, exploring the moon. We have a very broad mandate. We include um, professors, graduate students, postdocs as well, at universities, as well as um, people in industry, people who are doing research on a wide range of topics, everything like lunar geology, which is what I do. Um, we also have people who are working on uh, robotic systems, robotic navigation systems for navigating on the moon, uh, spacecraft, hardware, development of um, propulsion systems, how to get to the moon, how to navigate once you're there, what to do while you're there, and of course, what you can learn when you're there. So we cover all of that in our network. 
Now, the CLRN is also connected to the NLSI, the NASA Lunar Science Institute, which is a corresponding group of researchers in the U.S. And uh, the NLSI was uh, developed to promote not just research in the U.S., but lunar research in the world. And so their goal is to um, have a group of researchers, lunar researchers in each country, working together with international partners, collaborating between each other, uh, providing exchanges of people and uh, facilities, allowing the entire world to work towards the exploration of the moon. <laughs> so Canada, the Canadian group, is actually one of the first partners we're not just one of the first international partners, we were actually one of the first teams of any kind, U.S. or otherwise, that was selected by the um, NLSI to join the Institute. So th this begs the question, why Canada? Because it, Canada doesn't, isn't famous for its space program. You've got NASA, you've got ESA, the Chinese space program, but Canada doesn't, doesn't really register. <laughs> um, you may think that. <laughs> But we do have a Canadian space agency, okay. and um, Canada is, of course, responsible for very famous features like the Canada arm on the space shuttle and the corresponding arm on the space station. So Canada is not a new player. We've also been very involved in satellites since the inception. Uh, in the 60s, Canada was a world leader in remote sensing technology, and there are still some elements of remote sensing technology where we excel uh, in the world. So Canada is not a non-player. Mm -hmm. It is true that we have not led a mission to the moon like uh, India and China and Japan and, of course, the U.S. have, but that is something that we are working on, and the Canadian Space Agency is actually funding uh, Phase A studies on uh, Canadian-led missions to the moon. So hopefully in the future, that will be something that we will see. So there's obviously been a lot of research done about the moon over, over all of the decades, and, and don't we know quite a lot about the moon already? What is there still to find out? Well, there's an awful lot that we know about the moon, but that doesn't mean that we know everything. There's still an awful lot more to find out, and that's one of the things that we need to spend time and energy and resources on discovering. One of the things that we still don't understand very well is the origin of the Earth itself. Now, because the Earth is very active tectonically, we don't have very many spots on the Earth that still retain um, evidence of what the Earth was like 4.5 billion years ago. By contrast, the Moon, because it's smaller and cooled faster, is what we call a tectonically dead planet. It doesn't have plate tectonics, it doesn't have volcanism currently pumping up and creating new crust, and you don't have subduction zones destroying old crust. So a lot of what we see on the moon has been there for billions of years. So in effect, what the moon does is give us a snapshot of what the Earth may have been like when it was 4.5 billion years old. So by studying the moon, in fact, what we're doing is studying the early history of the Earth. And there are a lot of questions about the early history of the moon and the Earth that we still don't know. For example, we know from our studies of the moon that the moon had an original thick crust. That's what you see when you look at the bright areas of the moon. And then this thick crust was intruded by lava, 
which flooded the surfaces, making these dark, mari areas that you see when you look up at the moon. What we still don't understand is how this actual process occurred. How did the volcanism begin? Why did the volcanism begin? Was the volcanism caused by impacts that uh, thinned the crust and allowed the mantle to uplift and melt and extrude on the surface? Or was it the decay of radioactive elements in the interior that caused the mantle to melt? And it was just that in the basins you had thinner crust and therefore that's where the magma could make it through to the top? Or was it that, you know, magma came up wherever it did and just flowed downhill into the natural lows of basins? These are the kinds of questions that we don't know. These are the kinds of questions that may be very fundamental to understanding how plate tectonics began on the Earth. So these are the types of questions that we want to address when we look at the moon and say we must go back, we must get more samples, we must get more data. Surely we can look at uh, the Earth as it is now and see where volcanism is happening here um, and use that to go back in time maybe to, to as you said, the, the, the moon as it is now, the Earth as it was then, we can see the Earth as it is now and maybe find our way back that's a really interesting question because you would think we, we are able to uh, backtrack from our current understanding of the present Earth back through Gondwana land, for example, and you know this opening and closing of the Atlantic. We do understand all that and we can go back and do all that, but something that we're still not clear on is how do you actually get plate tectonics to start? We don't know how that happens. We can keep it going once it started but we don't have an understanding to date of how to get the whole process rolling. Uh, and we can look at Venus, for example, and there's a big debate going on. Does Venus have plate tectonics? And some people say, oh, yes, it does, but nothing like we have on the Earth. They think that on Venus, you, for example, you have a one-plate planet where the planet is stable, the planet is stable, and then every 500 million years or so, all of a sudden there's this massive overturn and you resurface the entire planet. Well, that's nothing like what we have <laughs> on the Earth. So why would that happen on Venus when you're having the tectonics that we understand on Earth happening here? Why one? Why not the other? Why either at all? So those are all questions that we do not understand the answers to. So there's a lot more to be learned there other than, oh, well, we understand how plate tectonics works and th that's it. We have no idea how it starts. We have no idea why it's the way it is on the Earth as opposed to any other system that you could possibly imagine. So let's move on to what your particular field of study is. Well, I actually study the moon. I study the geology of the moon. And one of the questions I try to address is precisely what is happening with volcanism on the moon? We originally thought it was a very simple question. You had an ancient crust, you had some big impact craters form, creating basins, there was lava that filled up the basins, voila, you've got big black blotches on big white areas. We mm. thought that was that simple. But in fact, it's not that easy because the volcanism did not all happen in one big event. There were multiple events, and in between those events, you had other impacts happening in other places. And so if you can imagine, you've got a small mari in a basin, and then you have an impact occurring somewhere on a highland area, which is light and bright, and it ejects material onto your dark mari area, 
Now, all of a sudden, your dark Mari area is no longer dark looking. It's now bright looking. Mm-hmm. So now you have something that is called a crypto Mari or hidden Mari. Time moves on, and you have more volcanism, more basalt flows on top. And so now you've got basalt flow uh, on top of your highland ejecta, which is on top of your older mas- basalt, and so forth. And so over time, you can build up quite a layer cake mm-hmm. of this kind of uh, dark Mari material, bright ejecta from highlands material, dark Mari, etc., etc. So one of the things that I do is I try to figure out the stratigraphy of this layer cake. Mm-hmm. And how we do this is with a bunch of remote sensing tools. Because unlike on the Earth, you can't, you know, hire yourself a drill rig with a team and go out there and get yourself some really nice core down to depth, pull it up and say, ah, yes, for X number of meters we have basalt, then we have a layer of ejecta. You can't do that. So we need to use um, natural drills or other craters that then impact after all of this has happened and excavate part of that stratigraphy, part of that layer cake, and uh, basically display that layer cake to us, either in the walls of the crater or in the ejecta that they uh, excavate. If an impact is happening on an area you want to study, isn't that going to um, cause a lot of uh, maybe changes, some metamorphosis within the rock, or, or isn't it going to to muck up some of the results? Well, it certainly does do a lot of interesting things, but they are interesting things that we actually have some understanding of what's going on. Now, impacts on planetary bodies are not like the impacts that most of us are familiar with from our daily lives. It's not like you take a rock and throw it at some sand and you see a bit of a pit and then you see the rock in the middle and there's some damage, and that's what it looks like. That's not at all what happens at the planetary scale. The planetary scale, you have what's called hypervelocity impacts. These objects hit each other at phenomenal speeds, often on the order of 10 kilometers per second. Oof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's fast. And so when something hits, uh, uh, when a moving object that fast hits a solid target, the dynamics of what happens is completely different from what we're used to from our daily lives of impacts, you know, our daily experience of impact. First of all, the impactor, the, the, the moving thing, is completely obliterated. Uh, secondly, the impact sets up a shock through the actual target material, which causes a lot of things to set into motion, including the material that's been hit. And so what happens is that the material directly beneath the impact starts to move down, and as it moves down, the shock wave decreases, and it starts to, it starts to slow down, eventually stopping. But the material slightly off to the side from where the impactor hit experiences a very different path. It actually experiences a U-shaped path down, across, and up, and out creating your ejecta that then gets excavated and placed around the crater rim. So you have this basic bowl-shaped excavation path happening that takes a bunch of material, a lot more than the size of the impactor that hit, and removes it away from the 
target area. Mm-hmm. So what you end up with is a big hole where a lot of material has been displaced down, off to the side, or even up, and a lot of material that has been displaced completely outside of the hole. So most of the material that was completely crushed to pieces has been removed away from the crater. A lot of it has been compressed down. So you do get a different result than if you had just taken a backhoe and dug out mm-hmm. um, a, a crater of that size. But it's processes that we understand to some extent, and we can adjust for that. So if you can imagine that you started off with a layer cake, very, very perfect, you know, perfect layers, you know, all is the same size across, and you impact it into that, you can now imagine that all those layers have been slightly depressed and shoved to the side, but you're still going to have a remnants of that layer cake, even though it's been slightly deformed and squished. Mm-hmm. So you can still look at the sides of the crater and see some of that layer cake. Mm-hmm. Sure, it's going to be slightly squished and depressed, but you're still going to see evidence of the different layers, and that's what we're looking for. So yeah, our estimate of how deep that layer was originally may be slightly off, and those are areas that we definitely need to do more research on. But we can get a first-order estimate of what was there, how deep was it, how many different layers were there. At least that's the expectation. Also, when material is ejected out of the crater, it's ejected in a very specific way, and therefore material further away from the crater is often more likely to come from deeper in the crater, so you can kind of have a reverse stratigraphy displayed for you on the surface in the ejecta. And so if we can tap that compositional information from the ejecta, then we can also get that kind of information there. Okay. So how do we get the data in the first place? Because, as you say, it's not like we can just get our drill and and go and drill down. It's worse than you can't get your drill and go down. You can't even go down, pick up rocks, and bring them back and study them in the lab. That's, that's the gr- holy grail of lunar exploration, is we would love to get lots of uh, uh, landers and rovers crawling around the moon, picking up rocks, bringing them back, either bringing them back to Earth for analysis or having many uh, uh, labs on the moon where you could actually do your analysis right there on the spot. So that's our holy grail. But we don't have that at the moment, so we have to make do with what we do have. And what we do have are remote sensing techniques. There are several data sets that have a multispectral component. And what that means is that when you look at an image that's black and white, usually that means you are looking at an image that was taken with all the possible light that a camera can collect. So that's panchromatic. Multispectral says, okay, well, I don't want every single bit of light. I just want light from this particular region of spectrum. So I want to look at just red or just blue or just green light. And so when you do this for many different wavelengths or colors, you get what is called a multispectral image. So you have every specific information at every different wavelength or color. Now, the neat thing about that is that most things have a very specific response at different 
wavelengths. So you put, you plot up your, here's my, how much light I get back from this particular object, here's the wavelength, and it, it gives me this great little curve, right? So it's not a solid line, it's not a straight line, it's not like everything reacts exactly the same at every different color, it reacts differently at, at different colors, and so I get this lovely squiggly line. And through lots of study, we have figured out what the squiggly line looks like for different types of materials. So it's called spectroscopy. We can, by looking at the spectra, the squiggle, we can see what this material is. Now that's great and wonderful if the area that we're looking at is one type of material only, but of course reality is not like that. Usually we have mixes of materials, so now we have to use algorithms to try and unmix and say, okay, this squiggly line is a composition of that squiggly line, that squiggly line, that squiggly line, and that squiggly line. And furthermore, it's 50% that squiggly line, 10% that squiggly line, et cetera, et cetera. So we actually do have the capabilities to do that, and that allows us to give us some information about what is happening at, on the moon from a compositional level. So now we can say, okay, that's we've got some basalt, we've got some uh, highland material. We can even say we have a, this type of basalt or that type of basalt, and we have this type of highland material. So it's a very powerful tool, and the detectors are just getting better and better. So we hopefully should be able to do some really interesting compositional and stratigraphical uh, studies with this kind of data. Mm -hmm. And do you also pick up uh, the traces of what originally bashed into the moon, uh, or is that just too too small for too small? It's it just way too small. Mm -hmm. The first of all, the amount of material that gets excavated is uh, on an order of magnitude or more greater than the amount of material that impacted in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you're looking for literally a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. And um, even doing terrestrial studies of craters where they, you can walk along the thing, you have days, months, years to look for impact material, even then it can be very difficult to do so. It can be done, but it can be very difficult to do so. On the moon, we don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. We don't have that luxury because we have not figured out a way to keep astronauts up there for years. Mm -hmm. And we have not figured out a way to get intelligent enough robot systems to do that autonomously. Mm -hmm. So that is a real difficulty on the moon. So what have we found then? Well, what we have found is in fact that it is the layer cake mm -hmm. and not a strict big blotch of basalt on a big area of highland. We found that mm -hmm. it's much more complex and that's exactly what my research is doing. And I look for uh, ways of improving on our knowledge in that respect. Um, my specific research works on fusing data from as many different data sets as I can. One of the things I love to do is I like to take topography data, which tells you the elevation of everything. I try to then take some sort of a picture type data, which just gives me what things look like, so that it's familiar to the eye-brain combination. I, I, so it's familiar to what the human eyes used to seeing, mm -hmm. and I overlay that on top of the topography data, so you can actually see you know, the hills and the mountains and the craters. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, I like to lay other information, usually compositional. For example, you can take Clementine multispectral data, and from that we have some great algorithms that tell you what the iron content of the area in question is. And so I can overlay that on top. The reason why iron information is interesting is because basalts contain much more iron than highlands, so that's a great indicator of what you're looking at. 
Also, I have some personal algorithms where I have de- that I have developed for identifying specifically basalt spectra. So instead of having to look at every single pixel in a hundred million pixel image, I can just set my computer to run and tell me, here are where the interesting basalt spectra are, go look there. Mm-hmm. I overlay that on top, and then I also take uh, old geological maps from the Apollo era that have been developed, and I register them electronically, and I overlay that so I can see what other people have thought was going on in this area, and so I can use all of this built-up information to try and understand the area better. Okay. The fact that we're using old photos and data as well as new photos and data, is the old data good enough to to work with the new data? Yes, actually. In fact, some of the old data is phenomenal in comparison to some of the newer data for different reasons. For example, we had during the pre-Apollo era when they were trying to figure out where to go, they had a series of orbiters called lunar orbiters that took amazing pictures For example, we have an entire lunar data set of what the moon looks like at every point, almost every point, there's a few missing spots, but almost every point at relatively high resolution, better resolution than Clementine data. So that in itself is great. I use that all the time because it has a very good feel for this is what you're seeing. It also gives you a bit of topography data because you have shadows which tell you where you've got hills and where you've got... uh, depressions, and so that gives you a really good feel for what you're seeing. The Clementine data is good for other things in other regions. So you can use both of those data to give you more information than either one would give you alone. Mm -hmm. The trick comes in trying to make sure that the crater from one data set matches up with the crater from the other data set, and that can be a technical nightmare. But it's something that we work at, or at least that I work at, because I find that the results are so amazingly visual. You get this visual gestalt that is just much more intuitive than seeing the individual images side by side when you see them laid on top of the other. So the benefits really are worth the effort. You, uh, so you mentioned India is going to the moon? Yes, India has already sent an orbiter to the moon. It's called Chandrayaan-1, okay. and it was in orbit for several months almost a full year, Mm -hmm. collecting a variety of data. Mm -hmm. There were um, international partners. They Mm -hmm. had instruments from a variety of nations, including one from uh, NASA, Mm -hmm. uh, led by a team from Brown University with Carly Peters, Mm -hmm. and they had a fabulous multispectral instrument on board. Mm -hmm. The data has not yet been released to the public, but will be hopefully in the summer, and I can't wait for that. Um, another thing is, I read somewhere that uh, moon dust or the, the is highly corrosive. Is that true? Okay. Uh, it's not highly corrosive. It's highly abrasive. Okay, abrasive. Sorry. Yes. Um, and yes, that is true. It is, imagine the worst um, fiberglass dust mm-hmm. ever. Right. Multiplied. Wow. So you have, basically you have... The, the lunar regolith is made up a lot with a, of a lot of glasses, mm-hmm. and when glass breaks, you know it's very shardy. Right. And so you've got an entire surface made up of shards of glass at fine, fine scales. Right. And mm-hmm. these things get into the astronaut's clothing, and they rub against everything, and they get into seals, and yes, it's very, very abrasive. And it, what would happen if the astronauts actually breathed some of that if it got inside? That is something that there are people who are actually studying those kinds of 
issues, the health effects of lunar dust. Right. That's not my specialty, so I can't comment on of it. Of course. But there, that is definitely a, an ongoing area of research, a very serious area of research. Okay. One of the biggest things about dust is, so if you're going to have a base on the moon where astronauts are going in and out of a an habitat area for prolonged periods of time, you know, you need to really be careful about making sure that that dust hmm. from their spacesuit, because they have to come in suited from outside, hmm. take their suit off, and then go into a habitat area, and you have to be very careful about making sure that the dust does not get into the habitat area, that they are protected when they're in that enclosure where they're removing their spacesuit, because they don't want to be breathing it in at that point either. So those are really big issues of concern, both for the doctors on those kinds of teams and the engineers. Because I think that's something that most of the general public isn't aware of, how mm. abrasive, as you yes, said, yeah. that lunar dust can be. Yeah. I think for most people, they think of the moon as a giant rock that's yep. just sitting there that's solid. Is that true, or does the moon actually have a molten core? Is there actually a we liquid element to the moon? We don't quite know. Okay. There is definitely no liquid iron core okay. in the interior. Mm-hmm. What is in the interior is probably something that is an iron-silicate mixture, mm-hmm. which means iron and rock. Silicate is just mm-hmm. a fancy word for what most of the rocks you see on the Earth are. Mm-hmm. Most, not all. Mm-hmm. What the state of it is, we don't know. It's certainly not fluid like water, but it may be more fluid than say the rocks under your feet where between those two it falls we're not quite sure why haven't we been back to the moon so far well one of the problems i think is really a public perception problem there's a real been there done that attitude about the moon which we don't have about mars for example so people are interested about going to mars there's something exciting there there's the possibility of life we've not explored it And that's the attitude about Mars, and that's unfortunately an attitude that's lacking about the moon in the general public. Scientists, of course, will tell you there's lots to be studying on the moon, and we should be having rovers crawling all over the planet, giving us that information. But it's really a matter, I think, of public will. Well, Irene, uh, I wish you all the very, very best for your work and for the new results that will be coming out very soon. Uh, And thank you very much for your time. Uh, We will link to your website and all of the details on the show notes. So if anyone does want to find out any more, they'll be in the show notes there. But thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm here at the University of Western Ontario with Alex D'Souza, who is a grad student here in London. Alex, tell us about your work. Sure, I'd love to. Um, My primary interest is in star formation, the mechanisms of where stars form in our galaxy, how they do that, and uh, the processes involved. Although we do understand that stars do form from the collapse of molecular clouds under their own self-gravity, because of the densities of the the, the dust and gas involved, it's actually technologically right now impossible to peer into the inner envelope of where the actual star is forming. So the physical processes, such as the role of magnetic fields, uh, gravitational turbulence, and the varying degree to which those processes play a part, is still very poorly understood. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned that you, we can't really peer into the, the molecular clouds. Uh, is that, uh, what wavelengths are we talking about there? Because so, isn't radio astronomy uh, That's useful? right. The radio astronomy is useful. And the primary wavelength that we're involved with is the submillimeter regime. So this is a few um, of 0.1 micrometers all the way up to 100 micrometers. 
radio astronomy, although it is useful and it is primarily the, the wavelength that we use to peer through such high uh, densities of gas and dust, during star formation, the density of the gas and dust can, can re reach orders of magnitude larger than what we're used to seeing in the interstellar medium. And it's because of that that even to these wavelengths that the gas and dust can become opaque. Okay, so what's your, what's your particular interest within star formation? So particularly, we, we're interested in how gas, after the, uh, the star has formed, how is angular momentum transferred from the molecular cloud to the star? If you were to take a typical molecular cloud that you might find in a galaxy, these molecular clouds have orders and orders of magnitude of angular momentum. And what we find is that in a typical star, at the, once it's born, has about five to six orders of magnitude less angular momentum. So we've got a missing so chunk. So we have of... a missing chunk. And why this is important is because if you... Uh, if we're familiar with the concept of uh, conservation of angular momentum, which we think is a, a very crucial law in, in physics, and then that angular momentum has to be conserved. It can't just disappear. It has to be going somewhere. So the, the remnant of these molecular clouds, the gas and the dust, we believe then forms disks around. As the star sort of spins up, the disk that was in the surrounding envelope is forced into an, a, a disk that surrounds this. And it's within this disk that angular momentum is transferred. And it's in this transfer process that gives rise to the formation of planets and planetary structures. Okay. Uh, so just thinking then, what about stars on their own? There, there's there's no, nothing wrong with the angular momentum there, is there? There's nothing wrong with the angular momentum on their own, except for the fact that they seem to be missing this, this chunk. Ah, so, if it's not going into a planetary system, where is it going? So, we do think it is going into the planetary system, okay. but then where, how is that angular momentum being distributed? All that gas and dust must end up onto the star. And what seems to be happening is that, in the case of our own solar system, for example, we have about 99.9% .9 of all the mass concentrated in the sun. And that remaining tiny portion of mass, which is largely represented in Jupiter, seems to be carrying all the excess angular momentum. Okay. So all that angular momentum initially in this molecular cloud, after it's put into the star, and the star turns on and forms, a tiny fraction of the mass is loaded up with the remnants of that angular momentum and pushed way, way off. Okay, so that's, that's a fairly simple start of, of this, is where, this is how stars form, this is how planets form. Exactly. So what, what is your work that carries on from this? So I'm interested in the process or the description, the physical description of what's happening within these disks. We try to model these disks of gas forming around the stars as a fluid. And so we use the typical equations of fluid dynamics. And the way angular momentum or mass can be transferred in these systems is with a viscosity. So how do we describe a system of gas and dust together? What sort of viscosity do we assign to it? Because, as we talked earlier about the, uh, the opacities involved and how dense the, these gases are, it's very difficult to get a clear description of the actual size of grains, particles of, of, of dust, how they're clumping together, how they're forming. Mm -hmm. What is the role of magnetic fields in stirring up this mixture or acting as a sort of a, a barrier to the accretion flows? As clumps of gas and dust accrete together to form planetismals, they affect the, lo the local gravitational potential of these disks, which gives rise to further turbulence. Mm -hmm. 
we have a general understanding of the different mechanisms that could be in play, but what are, to what degree do they affect the actual formation of the disc, we don't know. Okay. Do you have any answers at all? I like to put my money on gravitational turbulence. Okay. Uh, we do know that magnetic fields play some, some form of a role in the formation of these disks and, and how they go on to evolve. But it seems that gravitational torques and turbulence are a primary uh, mechanism in maintaining stable uh, disks. So that's where you'll have a, a clump of matter within the disk, and this will, this will form sort of eddies in the fluid? It'll that's exactly correct. So these gravitational, uh, you can think of many potentials forming up in the disk around these planetismals that give rise to local turbulence. Mm-hmm. But the nature of the gas and the viscosity, how it flows through the disk, means that the local turbulence can actually affect the global dynamics of how the disk continues to evolve. And often if you get a clump of matter that's large enough, it can actually cause the disk to fragment as it sweeps up material in its particular orbit and causes material from the inside to to sort of more quickly accrete onto the disk and acts as a barrier from external material from falling inward. Mm -hmm. And of course we see that in our own solar system where the the planets are very carefully balanced against each other. And that's exactly what we think has happened to our own solar system. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Alex D'Souza, thank you very much for coming. Thanks very much for having us. Thanks for that, Dave. And now we get on to the part of the show where we round up everything that doesn't fit into any other section. So, Neil, what have you got for us? Uh, so this one's a little bit quirky and also a little bit hypothetical. Um, so, um, NASA have offered, or have they started up a new commercial crew development program, which has been proposed by Barack Obama's new budget, and hopefully if this goes through, um, Boeing will have, uh, or they've been awarded $18 million for preliminary development of a spacecraft under this program. So it will be called this Crew Space Transportation 100 craft, kind of a strange name. So its primary function will be to transport astronauts to and from low, low Earth orbit to uh, the International Space Station. And um, they're going to be working in collaboration with the Bajlo Aerospace um, Corporation, I guess, which is funded or founded by a hotel entrepreneur. Wow. Very interesting. And um, apparently this guy's been investigating the possibilities of inflatable space structures. Inflatable? Yeah, that's right. Um, they're supposed to be proposing building an inflatable space structure in low Earth orbit. So I guess that's something that they take up and then maybe expand it somehow. I think so, yeah. It's, it's, not, really, it's not really stated exactly what they're going to do, okay. but it's supposed to be a great idea. Yeah, so that's kind of like how some satellites unfurl their maybe deploy solar panels. In a, Inflatable way. Yeah. And Sounds interesting. It is, yeah. It's going to be the first inflatable space station in orbit for 2015, <laughs> which kind of makes sense. And apparently, um, it's going to be used for cooperation such as material sciences, nanotechnology, and also um, for entrepreneurs, maybe like uh, Richard Branson, maybe he's listening. Um, <laughs> well, we know he does. Yeah, of course, of course. And this uh, Bob Bigelow, he, um, he's also stated in a quote, that I'd also like it to be used for movies or possibly as a hotel sort of resource. So uh, it's definitely quite interesting. Um, apparently this capsule, this craft, could contain up to seven people. And, um, yeah, it can be launched upon Atlas V, Delta IV and Falcon 9 rockets. So pretty okay. much anything, really. So when do they think that this capsule is going to be ready for use? Well, I'd say 2015 for its 2015. first launch date, yeah. And uh, it's designed to stimulate development of privately owned crew vehicles uh, to transport you know, astronauts to and from this low Earth orbit. Um, maybe take the the edge off uh, NASA, you know? 
Yeah, well, NASA, now that they're retiring the space shuttle, they're going to have to ask the Russians very nicely for lifts up to the ISS. (laughs) Indeed. So maybe they want to go down a more commercial route just to uh, edge the bets. But speaking of manned spaceflight, something that's been making the rounds on Twitter and blogs and everything online is an interview that the Astronomer Royal Martin Rees, Sir Martin Rees, Professor Sir Martin Rees, Baron Professor Sir Martin Rees. School Professor, hey? I'm not quite sure what you say. If anyone knows the correct order to put things in, please let us know. So Professor Baron, Baron, Professor Sir Baron. It's <laughs> pretty know. cool though, anyway, right? Let's, let's stick to Professor because we're academics. Um, he did an interview for Cambridge Ideas, which is a series of videos and podcasts and things that the Cambridge University puts out. And he said that there is no need for manned spaceflight. It's a waste of money to put people into space. And instead, we should be concentrating on developing robots and unmanned space technology instead, which is a bold claim. Definitely. So what he's basically saying is he likens going to Mars to climbing up Everest. He thinks that Manned space flight is very high risk and it should be a private adventure more than for research purposes. I mean, if you think about it, we've got rovers on Mars. They're sending back so much data. We've sent probes to asteroids. We're looking, we've got telescopes looking at other planets. I mean, around other stars. It's, it's pretty incredible what, what unmanned things are doing. But if, it, if something goes wrong on a space flight mission, you're going to want to have a person there to correct it. Well, it, it, it depends. It depends what you mean, but say, I mean, we lost Beagle 2. We don't know what happened. Would you really want to have put a person in that situation? And say Spirit is now stuck on Mars, but NASA have managed to turn it into a stationary station. And it's still, you know, it's still collecting data. Something's gone wrong. It can't move, but yeah. it's, it's still producing science. You've got to weigh up the, obviously a robot can't make an informed decision to go and look at something or to change its mission because it's seen something interesting. For all we know, I could have missed the face of Mars, you know? <laughs> it, yeah, maybe the, the rovers definitely have missed Bowie Base. But it's an interesting interview. I think that some uh, certain quotes have been taken out of context. He says, um, biology is a much harder subject than astronomy. <sighs> Basically saying that we don't even know how life formed on this planet. So how can we be expected to know how life formed on other planets? But things have been taken out of context. It's an interesting interview if you want to go and go and watch it. Of course, if people do go into space, they'll get an excellent view of the night sky. But here to tell us what we can see from Earth in the Northern Hemisphere, it's Ian Morrison. The night sky in August. Well, the nights are drawing in. You haven't got to wait up quite so long to see the stars and, as we shall see, some of the planets. Up to the right is the bright star Arcturus in the southwest. That's in the constellation of Bootes. Just a little bit below and to the left is a rather lovely circlet of stars, Corona Borealis. And across from there, the constellation of Hercules. The four brightest stars make up what is called the keystone. And if with binoculars you look up the right-hand side of the keystone, about two-thirds of the way up from the bottom, you should see a little fuzzy blob. And that's the globular cluster M13, the finest globular cluster a spherical concentration of about a million stars that we have in our northern hemisphere sky. Below that is the rather blank constellation of Ophiuchus, and that lies above Scorpius with its bright red star Antares. 
That's really only well visible from the south of England, and preferably you want to go to the south of France or maybe near Venice, where you have a much better chance to see both Scorpius and, to its left, towards the east, Sagittarius, where you're looking towards the centre of the galaxy. Binoculars will show you two nice things in Sagittarius. Up and to the right of the top of the teapot, as we sometimes draw it, you see a, a bit of nebulosity. That's called the Lagoon Nebula. And if you imagine the water pouring out of the spout, that falls through a rather lovely cluster of stars, M7. Above that, in fact, is another smaller cluster called M6. It's a very beautiful region of the sky, not seen, sadly, so well from our northern climes. And then rising in the southeast, we have that wonderful group of constellations, Cygnus with its bright star Deneb, Lyra with Vega, and Aquila with Altair, Aquila the Eagle. Those three bright stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle. If you follow the line from Altair up towards Vega, it will pass over a rather darker region of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift. And there you'll see something that's formerly called Brocky's Cluster, but actually we tend to call it the Coat Hanger. It looks just like an upside-down coat hanger. High overhead is the constellation of Ursa Major. Very lovely one, you all know the plough. With your binoculars, have a look at the middle star, in quotes, of the handle, and you'll easily see it's a double star, Alcor and Miser. In fact, a telescope will show that the brighter of these is itself a double. Very nice little region to look at with a small telescope. And I should just mention one other star. Just to the left of Vega in Lyra is a double system called the Double-Double. It's Epsilon 1, Epsilon 2, Lyra. And uh, you with binoculars and possibly even with your eyes will see a double star, see two stars there, but with a telescope on a good clear night when the seeing is good will actually show that both of them stars are themselves double stars, hence the name the Double-Double. So we're beginning to see some very lovely skyscapes this month. What about the planets? Let's start with Jupiter. That's really been a morning object to see before the sun rises. But it's now beginning to rise in the evening, at about 8.30 actually, in the east. And uh, so you haven't got to wait up too long at night to see it reasonably high in the southeast. If you've got a small telescope, it's well worth having a look. I mean, you'll not only see the little Galilean satellites, but you should notice that the South Equatorial Belt, one of two dark bands that go around the equator, is missing. That does sometimes happen. And also, nicely, the great red spot, which varies in how obvious it is, is now actually pretty obvious. So it is well worth having a look at Jupiter, either staying up fairly late at night, to let it get a little bit higher in the sky, or possibly having a look uh, before dawn, when it shines very, very brightly and you just can't miss it. Well, the other planets we can see, four of them, are all there after sunset. We'll start with Saturn. Now, it's well past its best, but you can see it very low in the southwest after sunset. It's actually lying in the region of Virgo, down to the left of the constellation of Leo. Magnitude is plus one, not as bright as it often is because, of course, the rings are still very, very close to edge on. They're at their minimum, about 1.7 degrees from the line of sight in May, and they'll get to about five degrees by the end of August. So they're beginning to become a little bit more apparent. 
So that's the first you can see. Mercury can also just be seen very low in the west-northwest just after sunset. Brightness is plus 0.3, so you'll need binoculars. It's just three degrees above the horizon in the twilight sky. But it's about 20 degrees, that's about four binocular field widths, to the lower right of Venus, so that might actually help you find it. It's not the best month for this planet. Usually it's best seen in the spring or the autumn. Well, Mars which of course was closest to us much earlier in the year. It remains visible in the southwest after sunset. It's moving eastwards and again lies between the star Regulus in Leo and Spica in Virgo, rather as does Saturn. And as we shall see in the highlights, three planets are going to get pretty close. You won't see any details. The angular size is getting down to four arc seconds, unless of course you've got access to the Hubble Space Telescope. But there are much better times to have a look at the surface of Mars. So finally Venus, it's very prominent in the evening sky after sunset. I mean, you just can't miss it, to be honest. It brightens to about its very brightest, minus 4.6 magnitudes. Venus tends to stay pretty constant in brightness, varying from about 3.8 minus up to about minus 4.6. And that's because as it nears the Earth, the region of the surface that's illuminated by the Sun becomes less but on the other hand, it's nearer, so the angular size is bigger, and sort of the effective reflecting area stays pretty much constant. Uh, it has an angular size actually increasing from 20 to 28 arc seconds during the month, and with binoculars, possibly, but it's so bright it tends to hammer the, the optics, or with a small telescope, you'll see it looks something like the first quarter moon. I think, in fact, its greatest angular separation from the Sun is about the 19th of August, roughly when we would see it looking like a first quarter moon. That is, you see the right-hand half illuminated. So finally, what about some highlights of the month? Well, August is the month when we perhaps have our most dependable meteor shower. It's the Perseids, and they can be seen from about the 11th to the 14th of August. Now, this is a very good year to spot the Perseids because, unlike last year and the year before, the moon is going to be a thin, crescent, waxing moon, which means it's setting early after sunset. It will not be in the sky after about 11 o'clock when it becomes best to start looking for the meteors from the Perseid shower, even better from about half past midnight to about 3 o'clock in the morning BST. That's when Perseus, which is the weather radiant of the meteor shower is, rises in the east. And also, the part of the Earth on which we are situated is beginning to face the direction from which the meteors come, and that lets us see them rather more easily. Given a good transparent night, you will probably see something like 20 to 30 meteors an hour. And the best morning is predicted to be the 13th, but there's still a good chance to see them any time from the 11th to the 14th. Well, good hunting. I shall certainly be out there. I hope to go to a very dark site in Wales to actually have a look. Well, I talked about the planets which are low in the western sky after sunset, and on August the 7th, we actually get what is called a planetary trio. And that's when you get three planets within an overall angular size circle of five degrees. That's rather nice because it means you'd see all of them together in a binocular field of view.
So on the 7th, we have got Saturn, Mars, and Venus all within a circle just 4.7 degrees across. So that's well worth looking out for. A little bit later on, they're beginning to separate, but you'll have a thin crescent moon, and that'll be on the 12th of August. So that's actually worth looking for as well. And although the overall trio separate, Mars and Venus become closer during the next 10 days, and around the 18th, they're just 1.9 degrees apart. So if you've got a good low western horizon, do have a look at the dance of the planets during the first couple of weeks of August. I've been saying something about the moon. You need a, a small telescope for this, but I've highlighted this month something called the straight wall. And you see it best either one or two days after first quarter, which this particular month is around the 18th of August, or a day or so before third quarter. And that's actually about the 2nd of August. And in one case, you see what looks like a dark line because what's called the wall produces a shadow. And in the other case, you see a bright line. And I've given on the Jodrell Bank night sky part of the website a couple of drawings showing what you might expect to see. It's actually a scarp. It's a fairly gentle slope, and it's not really a wall at all. Uh, Sir Patrick Moore has said, quite uh, rightly, neither is it a wall nor is it straight, but it's still a nice object to look at. And I've given an overall picture of the moon that I took, which shows whereabout on the surface to look. Well, Jupiter is very obvious during the night, but if you use your binoculars, it gives you a very good chance to see Uranus as well. It's just a few degrees away from it. And in fact, Uranus at 5.8 magnitude is quite close to a sixth magnitude star, which lies between it and Jupiter. So if in fact you use binoculars, have Jupiter towards the left of the field of view, you should see these, quotes two looking like stars towards the right-hand side of the field. The first is a star, but you may just get a hint of a greenish-blue colour, which is the disk of Uranus. And it's a lovely thing to look at, in fact, with a small telescope. So try and find Uranus if you didn't find it last month. So there we go. Quite a few things to look out for. Let's just hope the skies are clear around the 13th so we have a really good look at the Perseid meteor shower. Thanks for that, Ian. And to tell us what you can see in the southern night sky this month, here's John Field from the Carter Observatory in New Zealand. Dominating our winter evening sky in the southern hemisphere is the constellation of Scorpius. In Greek mythology, this is a scorpion that was sent down upon the earth to kill Orion the hunter. After achieving this task, it was placed up in the heavens and forever chases Orion across the night sky. From the northern hemisphere, the scorpion is seen low along the southern horizon, whilst here in the south, it climbs high overhead. The heart of the scorpion is marked by the red star Antares, the 15th brightest star in the night sky. The name Antares means the rival of Ares or Mars. Antares is a red supergiant star, approximately 600 light years away from our solar system and 7,000 times brighter than our star, the Sun. It is a diameter of 320 million kilometres, meaning the orbit of the Earth would fit inside this star. It is a double star with a faint star nearby that is very difficult to spot. With binoculars or telescope, the globular cluster M4 can be seen nearby. 
Long exposure photographs of this region reveal glowing clouds of nebulosity and dark lanes. Going southwards from Antares is a graceful curve of stars that form the body and tail of the scorpion. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we don't get scorpions, so we do not need to check our gumboots first thing in the morning for those. So Māori saw a very different shape out of these stars. They saw them forming the Great Hook of Māori, Timatau of Māori. In Māori mythology, this was a hook that Māori, a great demigod, used to pull the North Island of New Zealand up out of the sea. In one legend, Maui sailed into the Southern Ocean on a fishing expedition. The hook that he had was made from the jawbone of his great-great-great-great-grandmother and had special magical properties. When he'd found a good fishing spot, Maui put a drop of his blood on the top of the hook as bait and threw it over the side of his waka, his canoe. The jawbone caught a mighty fish and it took such a huge pull to get the fish up out of the ocean, the hook flew up out of the fish's mouth and into the heavens, forming the Hook of Maui. The fish he pulled up is known as Te Ika of Maui, the Māori name for the North Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand. The South Island is occasionally known as the Waka of Maui, the Canoe of Maui. To Māori and Tāris is known as Reikua, and this represents a drop of blood on the Hook of Maui. The tip of the hook crosses the Milky Way and ends close to the great star clouds of Sagittarius. Here we can see a number of star clusters and nebulae, including the cluster M7 that appears as a bright knot visible to the unaided eye. Through binoculars you will see many, many more stars. Nearby and best viewed through binoculars is a smaller cluster M6, known as the butterfly cluster, due to its shape resembling that of the insect. Following the scorpion across the sky is the constellation of Sagittarius the Archer, known to many as the teapot. The spout of the teapot points towards the centre of our galaxy, around 30,000 light years away. Our galaxy is a vast spiral system of stars containing maybe 400 billion stars. Our own sun sits quite a way out towards the edge of this galaxy and takes about 250 million years to orbit once. The region towards Sagittarius has a large number of bright clusters and nebulae that are prime targets for binoculars, telescopes and wide-field astrophotography. Special favourites are the Lagoon Nebula and the Trifid Nebula. Looking towards our western horizon and stretching towards the zenith, we find the planets Mercury, Venus, Mars and Saturn. Mars and Saturn start the month close together, but during the month they move further apart. Jupiter will make a welcome return to our skies in the evening in the east, rising about halfway through the night. Since the disappearance of one of its equatorial bouts, it looks quite different. Hopefully over the coming months, this equatorial bout will return and we can better understand the process in which it disappeared in the first place. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy your tour of the summer night sky from John Field here at Carter Observatory in Wellington. Thanks for that, John. And I about that time in the show for us to talk or to discuss the feedback. So, in the forum, I'd like to say thanks to Earth Unit, John of the Oak, and Rapid Eye for their comments about the July and July Extra shows. And Earth Unit, we promise the Jodcast will eventually be able to cure your hangover. <laughs> um, probably, one day. <laughs> probably don't recommend actually lawn mowing, though, while you've got one. Probably not yeah, a great idea. Yeah, probably quite dangerous. Yeah. And there's been a bit of discussion about Astronomy.fm. So, the forum user, Nikki, co-hosts two shows on Astronomy.fm called The Event Horizon and Under British Skies. And Jodcast is, of course, on AFM as well. 
And if anyone's listening from astronomy.fm, hello. Hello. Over on email, um, Pete Ellinger, who is a new listener, has emailed in. Unfortunately, he started listening to the Jogcast too late to complete our survey, but he sent in a few comments. He's asked if we could have a section of the podcast that build up in a foundation course relating to all aspects of astronomy. So this would be aimed at people who maybe don't know much about astronomy coming in from the outside and want to know more. Unfortunately, we don't have the time, the energy, yeah. the money to do this, but I would recommend Astronomy Cast if you haven't already listened to that. And is... uh, also a good resource would be Carl Sagan. He's done plenty of documentaries on yes, this Yes, Carl Sagan's documentaries are always, always good. The legend. Um, Pete also asked if we could have a PayPal link to encourage donations. Unfortunately, there's too many technicalities to do with being part of the university. Mm. Stuart's looked into it before and basically we can't do it. Unfortunately. Yeah, it'd be pretty much like um, pimping out the Jogcast. Um, I wish we could. I wish I wish, I wish we could. We could. Uh, thanks also to Russ Jenkins, Frank Bailey, all the way from Japan, John Tataskori from Canada, and Joan Lee for your comments about the July Extra show. If anyone didn't listen to the July Extra yet, it was mainly done by work experience students. So it's a bit more basic level, but I think the majority of people enjoyed it. Hmm. And over on uh, Facebook and Twitter, we've hardly had anything. And um, unfortunately, we've not been able to check our iTunes because uh, we don't really have access. But please keep reviewing us on there if you feel like it. We'll eventually get around to sorting out the technicalities. And if you want to send us any feedback about the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On YouTube, youtube.com slash jogcast. We're on Facebook at jogcast.net slash Facebook. And on Twitter, twitter.com slash jogcast. And that brings us to the end of this show. And we'd like to make a special shout-out to Andrew Markwick. We hope you get better soon. And I'm glad that you finally got round to listening to the Jogcast. It's about time. Thanks go to Dr Irene Antonenko and Alex D'Souza for being interviewed. In the intro and outro, Robin Bland was the announcer and Simon Cowell. Gwendolyn Jensen-Woodard was Amanda Holden and the dog trainer. Perry Whittle was Louis Walsh. And Mandy Burbank was the Jogcaster. And the editors were Dave Alt, Mark Perver and Adam Avison. Until next time, jot on. Bye, everyone. Bye. I think we definitely have star material here. I think I prefer the dog, but your ratings are going to be astronomical. Shoot me. Always happy to oblige. <laughs>